Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Welcome to the bubble. This is your host, Andy Slavitt. It's February 21st, or whatever day you're playing this, because this one's going to be a classic. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, we're going really in-depth. We've had her on the show twice before. This is probably the place where she comes and you can hear the real story, where she really unloads to a friend. She is a friend, but I still interview her nonetheless, and we still have a very specific and pointed conversation about what's going on. She has been in the firing line, under the gun, like probably very few other people. And she came at this uh, at a time in her career as an infectious disease specialist, as a great physician, quite frankly, as a parent, mom, daughter, etc., where she wanted to do well, got thrown in the fire, learned a ton of lessons, kept her humor, kept who she is about her, and really is, is an honest, great voice. But she doesn't shy away in this conversation, as you'll hear from the troubles and the challenges of... COVID-19, of the pandemic, of the CDC response. Those are all things we get to. There's some very, very good moments, interesting moments where we talk about what is going on right now and what her recommendations are with regard to masks, with regard to vaccinations, with regard to boosters. There's also kind of a laydown on what to expect next um, and try to draw her into some conversation about what comes next uh, here. And Probably some really interesting stuff that we end up getting into around what she's learned, both personally and professionally and about public health. I think it's really revealing, and I hope that you can listen to this and in some ways just put yourself in, for part of the interview at least, into her shoes and to, to, to see what life is like for her. It is interesting to be in a spot where you're interviewing someone you know so well and who's a friend. Uh, many of you know she and I worked together in the first few months of the Biden administration. I hadn't known her very long before that. I'd interviewed her in the bubble once before that. But uh, I think it's the shared history and the shared outlook for the country, I think, allows us to catch to the chase on some really interesting issues. And she shares some interesting data. Part of what I think I want to talk to you about for a second before I get into the interview is just this idea that I've talked about before of what we're facing and what we're up against here, which is the, this idea that we have a shape-shifting virus that can be one thing one day and another thing the next. And it's particularly interesting from the standpoint of the head of the CDC who has to tell you with some frequency what to do and what to expect and what the world looks like. And that's hard enough if you're managing a pandemic it's a whole other level of tricky when you're talking about a bug that can look very different six, eight, nine months apart, depending on how it mutates. And its ability to mutate, I think, is going to go down as its defining characteristic. Not its speed, not its lethality, but its ability to mutate and to become something different, to change on us. And that means that our response has to change with it. It isn't entirely possible to tell the public 100% of what to expect 
that puts someone like Dr. Walensky, Rochelle Walensky, in a really interesting spot because her job is to communicate to the public what we need to hear, honestly, and with all the subtleties. And so you will get that as a backdrop for what I think is a challenge she faces. And hopefully you'll really, really enjoy this interview. You're welcome uh, to play it as many times as you want, free of charge. Really, that's my gift to you. Let's bring her on. Damn, you look good. How come you don't age? You go through all this and you don't age. <laughs> I, You know, um, yeah, I will. <laughs> I feel like I've aged. <laughs> I, I hope it's not taking a toll somewhere else, but you look amazing. Thank um, you. Thank you very much. You, know, you always make me smile when I see you smile. Um, so it is now February of 2022. Can you believe we got this far? No, I can't. I mean, on the one hand, it's like time is moving so painfully slowly. And then it's like blinking. It's been a 13 months. Yeah. I think for most people, this has been really trying period of time i think in some part i don't know i feel like it's measured in part by just the level of uncertainty and and i think when people get um into this mode where they're like oh the pandemic's over or whatever i actually don't think it's i i I interpret it as people saying i just need a little less uncertainty just let me live with a little less uncertainty for a while because it's too much to handle I, I think you're totally right. I actually think we as beings don't do well with uncertainty. And in fact, there's 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 research actually among physicians that one of the big challenges about burnout in physicians is uncertainty and being able to give diagnoses. So I just think in general, we we as beings are not meant to have so much uncertainty and especially to be able to plan. I mean, to and to plan for happy things, right? Not just like, can, can I go to the market next week or will my kids be in school? school next month, but like, can I plan a wedding? Will be I be able to see a grand, a newborn grandchild? Like those, like real life events and especially like beautiful life events that, that we want to be able to celebrate and that bring us happiness and joy. Like, like not being able to plan those, a vacation right. for goodness sake. Right. When you have, I just, when you have a vacation to look forward to, or you have a wedding to look forward to, um, it's different than when you look out in the future and say, I don't know when or if anything good's going to happen to me again. And I think that 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 has weighed on us in ways that no matter how much we've thought about, known about, or what our attitudes are towards the actual public health crisis, that's at all of us, I think. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I'm pretty confident that we will one day have really good things to look forward to um, because pandemics don't last forever, right? Um the problem is people want to know about it. Like it's already been two years and people want to know, well, when's it coming? Um, and we just don't have a definitive date certain for that well, yet. It, it goes to this new normal question that people like try to ask when are going to be in this normal. And I guess I have two attitudes towards that. One is even in the midst of a virus, we can still focus on the great things that happen. We have tools that allow us now, thank goodness to see our parents and grandparents to go to sporting events, if that's the kind of thing we want to do, to dine outdoors and, and, and sometimes indoors, you know, depending on our risk tolerance. And so, you know, there's less reason to put off for most of us. I mean, some people are at very high risk, and that's a different situation. But for, for, for many people, there's less reason to put off um, those kinds of things. And the second thing that I makes me think of is, like, whoever said that a virus-free world is the normal we're all entitled to anyway? Like, you know, there are viruses. We lived with HIV for so long, and so many people was part of their lives. And in Africa, they've been living with viruses for a long, long time. It's just not been our normal recently. So I think we have both some adjusting to do as well as um, some recognition that you got to kind of keep living life in this process. It has definitely um, required us to recalibrate things that, I mean, things that make us happy, things we used to take for granted, right? Like going out to an outdoor dinner. <laughs> um, that was a, any given weeknight, right? And now it's like, wow, I'm, I'm going out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I'm going to go yeah, see some right. friends. <laughs> 
I didn't mean to start so philosophically. <laughs> um, I, 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 but, but maybe just to stay on the philosophical for a second, what have you learned over this past year um, as, as you've been in charge of the CDC? What have you learned personally, professionally? What have you learned about public health and, 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 and how the public responds in public health situations? Um, we only have an hour, right? <laughs> we, 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 can take the, we can take this offline anytime you want. No, but, you know, the, the, the lessons have been long, um, but the lesson list, I should say, has been long. I, there's definitely some things over the last year that um, I think we as society have learned. The, there was, and, and the expectations I think that we set, the, you know, I remember where I was when my phone buzzed um, with the results of the Pfizer vaccine data. I literally can remember the steps I was taking at the time that I got that alert, like 95%, this vaccine is 95%. And there was so much promise. And there's, and it's, it still remains a miracle, right? It remains incredible that we've been able to do this. But at the time, we put so much weight on that. We said these vaccines are going to render us bulletproof, right? Um, we didn't talk about waning. We didn't talk about variants. We didn't talk about, well, is that for severe disease or any disease? And we didn't, so, so the, it just, we had, we had these expectations, these extraordinarily high expectations, and maybe they were appropriate for the time. But, you know, in terms of the lessons, it's like, I, you know, I kind of wish at the time I had managed those expectations. Um, so caution with good news. That feels like you're totally, totally right. We tend to, Cases are dropping. The world's getting all better. Cases are rising. Things are getting worse. We get a good result from a Pfizer study. You maybe forget to to tell the public that how to put that in context or what could happen or what it could mean. And maybe people don't listen either because they just want to hear the good. They want it, right. Well, and also people so badly want it to be over. They want you to say it's going to be over on this date. And there, there isn't a date certain. Maybe one day a year ago, we thought there was going to be a date certain, and we thought that this was going to be a, that that um, endemic wasn't going to be a reality. Um, but I don't think we're going to have a date certain. I think we're going to tiptoe out of this, um, and that we will very gradually, one day, realize in retrospect we're no longer in this anymore, or at least right. in it the way we we you know we have been for the last two years. And what if you what if you learned about this job that you didn't I mean we, you and I talked actually on this show right before you took the job right before the job started after you took the job and we talked about uh, it may be interesting to go back and play some of that when you think about your day one priorities which I'm sure you're spending a lot of time thinking about what other things come to mind as the most important things for your day one? Uh, entering the uh, leadership at the CDC? I mean, so much of this has to be COVID. I, I can't, you can't have that question and not say that the top 10 don't have to be COVID because I don't think we sure. can do much so, else until we get out of COVID. Okay, so let's double click on COVID. So within COVID, um, what feels like the top priorities? Well, I, certainly the Biden administration has has articulated that we need to get 100 million vaccinations into 100 million arms. We have to do des vaccine distribution. We have to do it well. We have to do it right. Um, we have to get case rates down. I mean, we're going to be masking for the first 100 days and perhaps even longer. We have to get these case rates down and we have to get kids back to school. So um, all of that has to happen in the first 100 days or soon thereafter. I think, quite honestly, we're going to inherit things in a bad place. We're in a bad place now. And um, where we're going to be in two or three weeks, I think we're going to need to ask for a lot of patience to, if there's expectation that on January 21st, the pandemic's going to get better, like we need to just come clean and say, I, I promise you, I'll tell you all the news, not just the good news, not just the news I wish for, but all the news. It's going to be bad on January 21st. What, what if you learn, like, in some ways, I think, like, only the Fed chair has their words more diagnosed than yours in terms of, like, did she precisely say that, um, you know, that the mask could be an N95 or should be an N95? <laughs> and, like, you know, then, like, seven articles about, like, she used past tense or did she use present tense? Yeah, you know, um, 
I certainly throughout my career being an infectious disease always could have told you who the CDC director was, but I didn't think most of the public could. Um, now it turns out a lot of the public can, um, and every single word matters. Every single word on our website matters. Every single one. Um, voluminous pages of documents of guidance, um, which in any given day, one would have only thought healthcare workers, public health workers would read, and now they're being dissected. I think the, the other piece of this is, um, and I think it still remains so very true, science is leading this. Science is most definitely leading the way on this and is shaping and formulating the foundation of all of our guidance and all of our recommendations. That doesn't mean science is, is always, you know, uncontroversial or perfect or crystal clear. Um, and I think that by people assume that science equals black or white. And that has been um, interesting to navigate, especially as we've been trying to make recommendations and update our guidance in real time. So it's very appropriate for the times that we're entering. Right. It feels like that that means like almost every sentence you utter, you have to say, for now, this is the situation for now, or this is, or the science isn't settled, but this is what we recommend, or you know, some some element of res relative risk. Because you and I have talked about how the press sometimes, when you do say stuff like that, they kind of trim that part out um, or they don't emphasize it and say, you know, and the headline is simply, CDC says, leave your house after five days, right? When, it, when we in did. fact... <laughs> did we say that? <laughs> when, in, wait, when in fact, um, that's not what you said. Um, and, uh, and yet it takes... Um, so it's just interesting how things travel. I don't know to what extent the press is accountable. I don't know to what extent the the, the way we communicate um, has um, you know leaves itself open to those issues or or what the answer is entirely. I always felt, at least when I was working with you, that the best thing we could do was let you and Tony Fauci talk more directly to the public and just keep answering questions because the more that happened, the more people would understand, the more people could could listen to nuance and pay attention to nuance. Whereas if they read about it in a USA Today story with one single headline, they're going to just come away with what seems like a very simple conclusion. Yeah, you know, I think I think there's there's certainly enough to be learned all the way around. And I've certainly learned a lot about communication and scientific communication in the last 13 months, for sure. Um, I also think that to the extent that science isn't black or white, usually that scientific dialogue um, occurs in a scientific meeting. Um, many meetings are happening, you know, continue to happen virtually. Um, but right now what's happening is two opposing positions um, are played out on the you know mainstream news. Um, and then the next line is it's confusing. Well, yes, you've just put two scientists out there with two opposing views. And um, so which, which one is, is Joe American supposed to know or believe or trust? Um, and so there's, there's room for dialogue in this. It's very true. But it's not often the case that the gray area gets highlighted so much. There, it's Julia Louis Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few, and of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. 
As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Let me go through um, a couple of the like big questions that people have right now as they're trying to figure out for themselves. Um, so start starting with vaccines and boosters. Right now, as I understand it, for most of the public, there's not a recommendation that says people should get a fourth shot. Right? There's a recommendation that after six months, people get a third booster, but not a fourth. Is that? Is that right? That is accurate, yes. And what does the data tell you about why that's the case and uh, whether that sh- should be the case? I think Israel's approaching it a bit differently, but what's the logic behind that so that people, as they come across, come up from six months after their third bo- booster and they're starting to ask the question? So first to say is we're just starting to see very early data on the waning of boosters. So we launched our booster program late September, early October. The people who were first in line for those boosters, for those the first people who for which those boosters were recommended at that time were really those who are at highest risk. The, the older populations, the those with underlying medical conditions, those were the ones who were getting it first. So now we're, you know, in in um, late February, starting to look at the data on the waning of those the, that boosting. And I think one of the things we've realized with this new variant now, with Omicron, is you need higher levels of protection for, for everything, for infection, for severe disease, for hospitalization, for death. Um, what we've started to see in our booster waning data, and it's really our first window, is that it's actually holding up pretty well for hospitalization, severe disease. So 91% protection immediately after your boost, after four months, down to 78% protection against hospitalizations, but still pretty high. And so, um, and keeping in mind that um, it was a biased sample of the people who got those boosters first. So we still have a lot to learn. Um, we also, you know, don't Bi- biased because if you got it first, you were you had maybe higher risk. You were, you were higher risk right now. That doesn't necessarily mean we don't want to continue to protect those at higher risk. But when we look at the severe disease outcome, we're still doing pretty well at 78% in terms of hospitalization. Now we're going to continue to follow this. This was our first data point in, in our first study. Um, and we will, as we follow those data, we'll continue to make recommendations and see if boosters are needed for that population. So we're probably worth helping the public understand how to interpret the 78%. Um, because uh, you know, we, we both have parents, uh, you and I, that are, that are approximately in the same age category. If they hear that, does that mean that if they get COVID, my mom or or one of your parents, that there's a 22% chance that they end up hospitalized? What does that what is it what does that mean? No, no, no. So that is it, the given that you might be hospitalized, there's 78% reduction in hospitalization. So compared to people who are unvaccinated, you have a 78% less likelihood of being hospitalized if you are otherwise going to be hospitalized. Right. And so that's an enormous difference. Huge, huge. An enormous difference. Um, And the difference between 90% and 78% does not mean you're 12% more likely to be hospitalized, which is, I think, how some people who hear the the data might understand it. Yeah. But but you're talking about one in very, very, very small numbers of people um, who who are going to be hospitalized. Um, even after several months of waiting. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's very confusing to people. Yes, yes, yes. I, I mean, these are this is epidemiology and and um, and numbers that are hard to follow and hard to understand. Um, so the that kind of drop off, um, you know, should people say, um, uh, you know, because people, I think people don't want to be hospitalized, right? Right, right. Um, 
and and that and that that drop off to some um, sounds like a you know a, a relatively more significant danger. So what's the um, what's the rationale for saying you know you you know even even with that um, you don't need to get boosted or or will there be an option for people to decide for themselves if they think 78% um, is a risk that they don't want to take? Yeah, I, I think that what we really need to, first of all, it's, sing, it's a singular data point. So we need to look at, you know, we need to look at all of the amount of disease that's out there. Of course, you're going to have less hospitalizations, absolutely, as there's less and less disease out there. You know, one of the reasons for boosting at the time that we said boosting was because there was more disease out there, because there was Delta. And in fact, because Omicron started, was coming, we didn't know Omicron was coming, but Delta was was with us and we wanted to make sure that there was that protection. So we will continue to follow not only is that a stable data point, is 78% actually the right data point? because there are confidence intervals around it. Is that a persistent data point? Is that something that 78% continues or is that something that continues to go down over time? And then how does that work in the context of how well our boosters are going to be working? Um, and and we, have, we have data, we'll see data from other countries as to how well they are working. Um, ultimately, you know, we would want to boost proximal to when there's a lot of disease in a community, right? You want to have good protection around the time. So you want to maintain a good level of basal protection, but you also want to have good protection in a community should there be a lot of disease in that community. And that's a, an interesting balance since we don't exactly know when we're going to see a lot of disease in a given community. Right. If you look at the last couple of years um, for, you know, for, for Florida, that seems to have been in the summer. Yes. Maybe Arizona, Texas, and for mo- most of the rest of the country, um, uh, including parts of the South, as uh, uh, yet again, it's it's uh, it's the uh, late fall and winter. So, do do you does it should people anticipate that um, if if the n- number seventy eight percent turns out to be roughly right, that we should look for um, some sort of recommendation on what we should do next when it comes to the late fall and winter? Um. I would say, you know, it is, it's going to depend on what the data say. We're going to see data from Israel. We're going to continue to follow the data from this cohort and then from many other cohorts as well. And it'll depend on what the data say. It's also the case, um, you know, respiratory viruses in general tend to thrive in the winter around the around the country, not just, you know, in places that are cold. But they they tend to do better in the winter. They, they, they like the winter environment. But you're right. We've seen surges in warm places over the summers as well. And so I think that um, a lot of this is going to depend on what the data show about continued waning and then about the epidemiology of the disease and anticipated variants. We're going to see data out of Pfizer study on Omicron-specific boosting. Um, I think that'll help inform some of our decisions as well. We'll see data out of Israel. Um, So I think that there are going to be a lot of different incoming uh, data points that are going to help inform this. Um, Certainly, we wouldn't want to have waning too far in terms of hospitalizations um, for our vulnerable populations, that's for sure. And that's really where Dr. Fauci, I think, has come and said, you know, we may want to have selective boosting for certain populations. Um, Just the way we do for immunocompromised populations, right? We have a fourth dose for, we consider the primary series three doses and have a fourth dose for our immunocompromised populations. Got it. So right now um, for you know, I think I think we, you know, I've mentioned to you my my mother's boosted. She's she would not like me to disclose her age. She's she's ageless. Okay, <laughs> like all of our mothers. <laughs> yes, like like me too. By the way, um, I would and, have said that. <laughs> thank you. Actually, you look ageless. That's the difference. <laughs> so she's going to ask when it gets to six months. Should I have a booster again, um, and can I get one again? Um, so, you know, right now we're saying, based upon hospitalizations, that the answer is we're not making that recommendation. If she felt like, after hearing that data, that it would put her at risk, does she have the option to get her doctor to say, um, give her a, a prescription for a booster? We I, Well, first of all, you don't really need a prescription for a vaccine right now. Second of all, we will have, I'm going to guess by the time she's six months boosted, we will not only have more data from our cohorts, but more data from Pfizer. We'll have a recommendation from the FDA as to whether that is an appropriate thing to do with it. So there, this is a 
active area that we are looking at over the next you know month or two um, to see whether this is something that we need to be doing. It's also the case that you know I, people have, as you we've talked about, different levels of risk tolerance. The people who are asking about whether I should get my fourth dose are likely the same ones who are being pretty vigilant about how they're protecting themselves as well for many other, in in, men, in many other settings. People who are interested in their fourth dose are not necessarily the ones who are not practicing any other mitigation strategies. They tend to be the ones who are also being careful. Yes, yes. Although we have to keep reminding them sometimes that, that they have to keep the mask on. Um, <laughs> mom, no, I'm just kidding, Mom. Um, <laughs> The, so you hear that, mom? We're, we're, we'll know more later. And I, and I know it's not just my mom that's uh, that's interested in this question. It's a lot of it's a lot of us. It's a lot of people. Uh, but do you think that the the most important number we'll watch for is the hospitalization number? That's going to be the the one that's most important, as opposed to where we were at the end of 2020 when we were looking at infectiousness. Um. Well, I think you mean in in terms of um, infection. In terms of, I'm sorry, infection and. Yeah. and um, Right. Symptoms. Yes. Yeah, I think we've seen with I mean, Omicron's um, got very similar characteristics and yet very different characteristics. The 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 um, mild but milder, but not mild, I think, is really an important piece here. Um, we do know that your booster will most likely help keep you out of the hospital, but it may not protect you from infection. And so if you want to be protected from infection, even if you're boosted, I would say you got to wear your mask. Let's call it mildish. 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 <laughs> yeah. Mildish. Um, okay. So that brings me then to masks, right? Because if boosters, particularly only for a time before they wane and, and being vaccinated without being boosted, doesn't really provide great protection against contagion. Um, and then we have a very wily little virus here that infects quickly with a quick intubation period and also has, um, uh, as we know, can spread asymptomatically and presymptomatically. Um that means that when there are times, time periods where there are higher amounts of transmission, the the we can't if we want to prevent ourselves from just from getting infected um, with 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 uh, Omicron, that that masks are masks are a good practice in those in those settings. So right now you've got governors across the country who now that cases have fallen from six hundred thousand a day recorded to only like two hundred thousand. At three hundred thousand are are saying it's time to get rid of the indoor mask mandate. That the CDC hasn't gone there yet. Everybody's got an opinion about this topic. Um, what's what's yours? <laughs> Everybody has an opinion about this topic. First, um, you know, I just know people are tired, and there the the scarlet letter of this pandemic is the mask. It may be painless, it may be easy, but it's inconvenient, it's annoying, and it, it invisible. And it reminds us that we're in the yeah. middle of a pandemic, right? And so we get to live our lives again normally if we don't have to wear the mask. Um, we came down dramatically in cases from where we were just a few short weeks ago. We were at a million a day. <laughs> um, right. And that's only the ones through PCR, right? That's not even the ones for rapid testing that we we know we're not we're not counting. So we are down to 150,000, 200,000 a day, which I think is great, um, but we're not really low. And so um, I think I, I appreciate that governors are wanting to lean in and to give people promise and hope that, that, that these masks will be removed. And what's been interesting about how it's happening is it's happening in a phased approach. While the announcements sort of all happened around last week, or many of them happened around last week, it was the announcements and not necessarily the um the the activity did not actually cor correlate with the date of the announcement so people would say we're making the announcement but it's not going to happen until march or it's not going to happen until the end of this month and it may very well be that the trajectories that we're on right now that's actually a very appropriate timeline um so so we're continuing to follow today we have 2200 deaths on average, a seven-day average of 2,200 deaths. We still have 10,000 people a day being admitted to the hospital and 150,000 cases a day. So today, I don't think is the day to remove masks, just in terms of um, 
of the sheer numbers that we're at. But we also know that this disease is local. This disease um, very much depends on what is happening. It's, it's uneven around the country. And by using those country metrics, it's not entirely fair because there are areas, even in a given state, that have high levels of vaccination, low levels of disease and low levels of hospitalization and other areas of the state that have high levels of disease and low levels of vaccination. So we really do want to make recommendations that are going to be able to be community specific so that they can be reflected in, in the guidance, in our guidance, but also in the policies that are made. So let's look at the options for interpreting like how if you live in California or New York and your state is saying one thing and the CDC is saying another there's a couple possible explanations, okay? One is that both sides think the other side are complete idiots and wrong and have no business saying what they're saying. That's one possibility. Another possibility um, is that the CDC and states are making decisions with different data and accounting for different factors. And in fact, um, it is possible um, for both to be true. In other words, that, that, that a state or a locality, a municipality is making decisions based on local conditions, maybe higher vaccination levels, maybe um, lower transmission, maybe um, uh, other, other factors important to them. And is it safe to say that you might not think they're idiots necessarily? In all cases, maybe you do, but you don't want to say. But maybe some are idiots or some aren't idiots. Um, and, 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 and just being a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. But also that it's possible that... Uh, there's a third factor that states and governors have to take into account, which the CDC doesn't. And, and this is that, like, public sentiment, to, to some extent, that a governor could look at a situation and say, they're not going to do it anyway. I've lost them. So the, the mandate's only going to be an, an abrasive thing, whereas I'm better off with a more sophisticated, nuanced message saying, there's not a mandate, but I highly recommend so in California, they, 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 based on some encouragement that I provided them, I said, don't just have two things on your chart, mask or no mask, have, have required, highly recommended, recommended, and not at all. And just move from required to highly recommended to show that we're not all the way over there and that, and that there, that there are some, some nuances that at a local level that they've got to try. So is that, is it reasonable to try to explain the fact that there can be different things coming out of CDC and, and localities that way? Yeah, I think you're expressing well the tension of everybody has, you know, a different kind of, everybody wants this the right thing. Everybody wants to do the right thing, but everybody has sort of a different point vantage point as they make these recommendations, as they make their policies. Um, I increasingly think that cases are not, all we need to be looking at. And that's partially because of Omicron, because, you know, we are seeing many more cases than we are hospitalizations. I increasingly think that we need to think about how are our hospitals doing? Um, how severe is this? How, how frequently are people presenting to the hospital? Um, what does our hospital capacity look like? Um, we at CDC, I think, have to think about really three important things as we think about um, rolling out recommendations. First is what does the science inform us about what those recommendations should be? The second is what's the epidemiology of the moment? Is there a reason that epidemiologic curves and um, have to reflect something different and then, um, or have to reflect an action that's faster? And then third, we want to put out guidance that's feasible and that's implementable. Um, and so at the intersection of all of those and sort of the key metrics that I think are needed to inform the, um, the moment, you know, where we are in this current moment, that's kind of where we, we're all meeting um, at CDC. Where How that intersects with what policymakers do on the ground, I think they also have to take into account many different things that we at CDC may or may not have to. So who we're, it's a tough question because each of these localities are, some are better than others. It's easier for me to say than for you to say that, but um, where should people be paying attention? Should they be following the CDC guideline or if the state says the people are just trying to do the right thing? There's people who are just saying, you know, should I wear a mask indoors just to take a simple question? And if so, what type of mask? And if they're saying, if the governor is saying, you really don't have to, 
but they're for the CDC says um, you know it's really warranted, as you said, with this le- level of cases in the country. How should they think it? How should they think that through? Well, what I would say is right now, we still recommend indoor masking in public settings that have areas of high transmission. And right now that's over 98, substantial or high transmission. And right now that's over 98% of our counties. It's dropping fast. So, and and we are working to update our guidance soon. So, um, but I would also say that this also very much has to do with, as you said, risk tolerance. You know, on college campuses where kids are, you know, interacting with well college kids and have no anticipated um, interaction with somebody who wouldn't do pretty well with this disease, they may have uh, a higher willingness to take risk than, um, you know, they might if they were coming home to see grandma and grandpa. And so I think um, right now our recommendations are to continue to wear masks and public indoor settings. Um, We're in a very fluid moment because cases are coming down dramatically. So that may change soon. Um, But then a lot of this is based on risk tolerance. And interestingly, I think people in this moment, after two years of dealing with this pandemic, have a sense of where their risk tolerance is. Yeah, I think you're right. By the way, we had Caitlin Rivers on uh, the show a a few weeks ago. She is great. And she was talking about the weather mapping and all of the, the tools that I think could be available to both policymakers and individuals that will help them, uh, I think, from the CDC. For those who haven't listened to that episode, she's she's uh, running the new forecasting or part of the new forecasting team at the CDC, really analyzing the data and helping to, to paint the picture so that people can make these decisions locally just like they can, whether to wear an umbrella, wear a hat, wear a hat or carry an umbrella. Yeah, she, I, you know, I'm, I'm super excited about having her on our team and we have this incredible team on the center of forecasting and analytics. And um, part of this, you know, this was the, the brainchild of people during the transition team, but, but um, it's, it's near and dear to my heart as I'm a mathematical modeler by training. That is what my research was in before I came. So the, the impact and the importance of how we think about the data that we have at hand, how we forecast what might be coming or anticipate what might be coming and not just in COVID, but in all respiratory diseases and all potential future pandemics. Um, And then also what are the, the, um, key data that we need to inform those models. Um, because it's one thing to build the models, but if you don't have the right data or if the data you input into them are biased, then um, then they can lead you to a biased answer or to not the right answer. And so I'm just really enthusiastic about, about what they've produced already and how they've been able to use those data to inform key decisions that we in the government have made, that key things that we've been able to inform how are um, one of the key questions that they sought to answer and answered really quickly was the severity of Omicron. Where were we going to get data that was unbiased? Now, answering that question, how severe is Omicron, seems like it's such an easy, like, how could that be so hard? But we have an incredibly heterogeneous population out there now that has histories of infections from wild type to alpha to delta. We histories of vaccinations and boosting with different vaccines over different horizons um, and, and lots of people who came into the hospital and lots of people who got infected. So how do we answer the question, given the backdrop of all of your history, um, was Omicron as more severe or less severe in you? Um, and that's, you know, along, among the science that the the Center for Forecasting has been able to produce. People love to pretend that there are simple formulas for living your best life now. Eat this and you won't get sick. Manifest it and everything will work out. But there are some things you can choose and some things you can't. And it's okay that life isn't always getting better. I'm Kate Bowler, and on Everything Happens, I speak with kind, smart, funny people about life as it really is. Beautiful, terrible, and everything in between. Let's be human together. Everything Happens is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners. If you haven't heard, you can now 
Show your support for In the Bubble and meet other cool In the Bubble listeners with your very own In the Bubble t-shirt, mug, and baseball cap. Get all three. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop to pick up yours today. So we're sitting here at kind of a a, a deep breath moment, um, which we I think all deserve. Um, just cases are coming down. Um, we can begin to think a little bit about the future. I think we know enough now, uh, a year after Alpha, to say, okay, um, this doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of it. I think most people would agree that um, we have a shape shifting uh, virus that's that's pretty fit. Uh, and is able to adapt and has in the past. And so uh, we don't know what to expect ahead in terms of future variants. Um, but but I think uh, we're, we're I think we're at a place where most people, if asked, would say, if they say, will there be more variants or will there be more mutations, would say, yes, there, there likely will be. Um, what's your instinct in terms of what to expect in terms of uh, another variant or a variant of concern, I should say, not just another variant? Um, and do, do you have a... A general instinct or expectation that yes, we should be thinking that there's yet another another strange one that's going to come. Um, maybe I'll just f- first start with your introductory clause, which I think it wasn't as easy as you said it was going to be. I, I do think everybody sort of has this heavy sigh of relief, but I actually think. Um, sort of opening up is going to be almost as hard as closing down, if not harder. What does this look like as we all re-enter, re-emerge, re- and we've already started to. Schools are open, many businesses are open, restaurants are open, but but how we get to from here to what feels like normal again, um, I think is going to be interesting and, and, and important. And so that hard work is happening. Um, so I, I am very relieved that, that all of our disease these metrics are going in the right direction, but I do think we have a lot of hard work ahead of us in terms of making sure that that America knows that we're behind them as we as we work towards doing this right and doing this well and doing this safely. Um, we know as long as this virus is circulating here and anywhere else in the world, we're at risk of mutations and therefore we're at risk of variants. And so the answer is yes, we will have more variants. Um, and the real question is, will the ones that pose themselves upon us um, will we have the background um, immunity and uh, and the countermeasures to tackle them. And I think that that is, you know, we recognize the important questions that we need to answer once one of the, those variants becomes recognized. We don't necessarily have one that we're concerned, deeply concerned about in this moment, which gives us all a little bit of breathing room to, to think about a lot of the hard work we have ongoing. Um, but that we we do need to be prepared for a, a next variant that arrives. And I think we are all pretty hopeful that the background level of immunity will serve us well um, when it does. So let's talk about like, um, we you and I had a really, I thought a great conversation where I was very encouraged to hear how you were thinking about like what happens in the, the four to six weeks after we discover a new variant. And maybe we should even start one step further, which is how, how do you feel about our surveillance capabilities now? Um, you talk about, about wastewater um, and, and other kind of first signs. Um, how quickly do you think, um, how, how good do you think we are now being able to discover um, cases increasing and being able to find the right sequence? Um. Wastewater is interesting. So wastewater is really helpful if you kind of know the sequence that you're looking for. Um, so, you know, if you were to say, is there a new variant in the wastewater? That's going to be harder to find. If you were going to say, is Omicron in the wastewater? We can go searching for Omicron specifically. So the nice thing about wastewater, though, is that we really can get a signal from wastewater 
up to four to six days before we ever get a signal in cases. So that's actually really helpful because it does give us an advanced signal. And just this past week, CDC launched our National Wastewater Surveillance website, um, which has now 400 wastewater sites um, that represent about 53 million people. And we're going to double that over the next month. So we are really scaling up our wastewater activities, which I think is going to be service super well, not just for COVID, but we can look for many other pathogens in wastewater as well. So I think that that's going to be like one of the successes. In, in and is your ultimate goal that we have wastewater sites uh, p- pretty much throughout the throughout every you know throughout the country, most major cities? Yes, I, th- I think that would be great. Um, you know, it doesn't serve every. You know, we can't. We have um, lacoons that it doesn't. We don't get sure. signals from from septic systems and whatnot. But but yes, I think that that's we really want to be able to blanket more wastewater out there. The septic system is like the stay at home te- at home test, right? It just goes nowhere. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> well, hopefully, it leaves the house. <laughs> Yes, that's the idea. It's a general idea. A couple hundred, couple hundred years ago, maybe not. <laughs> right. Um, so, so uh, you know, I'm really encouraged by some of the new surveillance systems that we have. And you know, one of the things that we're doing, and and the there have been so many blessings of this. It, it's been so very hard, I and mean, there have been so many blessings. Our global collaboration to learn from one another around the world um, is has just been so so patent to me in this pandemic. So you know the work that South Africa did, the the sharing of sequences, the sharing of data when they first saw Omicron, was still meeting with South Africa every week, every other week to share um, the the experience that they have. People have said, well, how come um, CDC had to or America had to go to South Africa, but but you have to go where the disease is, right? You have to, if we only have 12 cases here, we can study our 12 cases. But if somewhere else in the world has, you know, 100,000 cases, they will have a lot more experience with it. Um, once we find those, and, and you know, we knew about Omicron, I think on November 24th, and we had our first case, we identified our first case here on December 1st. So once we knew what we were looking for, um, we were able to uh, really do enhanced surveillance. And then by December 5th, we were seeing it in our our surveillance systems. Um, our genotypic surveillance has been scaled up dramatically. Um, and then once we know that this is going to be a variant that we need to follow, then there are numerous questions you and I talked about that we need to ask. And I think- So let's go through those. So I think they're twofold. They relate to both the virus and then they relate to our countermeasures to attack it. So what are the intrinsic- qualities of the virus? And um, is it going to um, be more severe? Is it going to lead to more severe disease or a different kind of disease? Is it going to be um, more respiratory or more um, cardiovascular? Or, you know, where is it going to, to, um, to manifest? And so I think that that's one, one key area is the severity and quality and character of the disease that it results in um, and the population that it affects most, whether it's vulnerable populations, children, and whatnot. And then, of course, is it more transmissible? What can we expect about um, how it is going to transmit from within households, outside of households, um, and and the quality of that transmission? Is it children? Is it adults? Does it matter? Um, So that's sort of viral characteristics. And then there's all of the, how do all of our countermeasures perform against it? Um, Do our PCRs work? Do our rapid diagnostic tests work? Um, So diagnostically, can we find it when we think we're looking for it? Um, Therapeutically, do our monoclonal antibodies work? Do our antivirals work? Um, And then, of course, vaccines. How well do our vaccines work? And in fact, how well um, do they evade immunity, any kind of immunity, whether it's prior infection, can you get reinfected with it, um, or or vaccines? So, So I think that there's a lot of work to do, both in how our countermeasures work and how we understand the virus itself. And how quickly do you think that work can be done? Um, I mean, so so we're now talking about preparedness again for the next. It's it's the next variant, the next mutation. Um, that you know, within within six weeks, um, what could you do in vitro? What can you verify the population? And then you know, and then how can you use that to tell the public, hey, we will give you guidance 
in X amount of time on what this means for you and what we should yeah, be doing. Yeah, so some of these things take time um, because we don't know. I mean, we can, we can, and some of them happen in stages and we as a government need to, and as an academic community, need to sort of um, uh, have different roles and responsibilities in that, all of which need to congeal together. So for example, the FDA has a responsibility to understand how our diagnostics work against any new variant that comes about. And the companies that, that have those diagnostics have that responsibility in collaboration with the FDA. So that that lies with them. Um, We can look at a variant in the lab once we either have it or have it sequenced to understand how um, our antibodies are working against it. Um, That's probably the first step. How our T-cell immunity takes a little bit more time. Those those assays are a little bit harder. But then if you're asking the question, how do we as a population, how are our vaccines as a population in the real world working? We need enough data for people who have gotten the disease, have been vaccinated or unvaccinated, um, and then who may or may not get the disease. So that, by definition, takes time. Right. And so is that time measured in, in weeks or months? Because I think going back to where we started the conversation around uncertainty, I think people understand that, hey, it happens, we could have another bad variant. But if, they, if they're hearing, hey, we are on top of it, and within six weeks, eight weeks, four weeks, we will be able to assess these things, have a strategy for what to do across um, across each of those tools, and then be able to tell you that while that's getting figured out, here are the public health measures we recommend. And again, maybe because, as you say, this is incredibly mild, we're, we're not going to recommend certain things. Or maybe it is uh, we're, we're finding out that it is uh, incredibly challenging to certain populations, in which case we might recommend certain things. Um, and, and, and you know, here's what to do with your tests. Here's what to do with antivirals. Here's what to do with these things in the meantime, while we go about our strategy of either developing new ones or or just amping up production of current ones. Yeah, so this isn't going to be very satisfying, I'm sorry to say. The answer is it depends. And, and the reason that I say that is because if we have, I mean... The good news slash bad news about Omicron is we had so much disease out there, we could study it pretty quickly, right? But you need cases in order to measure how your vaccine is working. And if you don't have that many cases, it takes a while to accrue the data. And so the more cases you have, the faster you get the data to answer that question. Um, People have asked about the vaccine effectiveness against the Omicron sublineage BA2. Um, We've relied on data from other countries that have a lot of it to answer that question. We just don't have very much. And so we can't um, use our data because the good news is we don't have very much. But um, Mm -hmm. And I know that's not particularly satisfying, but if we find some, some... um, really mild variant, and we have 12 cases in the U.S., um, we can't tell you how our vaccines are working because we only have 12 cases. But I guess that's the scenario the public's not going to be as worried about. Of I mean, right? They're going to be worried about the ones that are the, seri- the serious threat. Like, if there's a serious threat, and there's a lot of it here. Yeah. Um, you know, that, 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 that people know there may be a window of uncertainty, but that it's only a window. Um, and at the end of that window, the news may be great, bad, good, Partial, but at least there'll be some some specific advice because we've now seen this movie before, and the the, the best thing you could say about COVID nineteen is it's no longer a novel virus. It may shape shift. It may be doing some challenging things for us, but it's um, but our, but we're getting used to it. Um, so that 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 plus some more certainty from the government to say. Hey, if it's bad, we'll know quickly and we'll know what steps to take. Yeah. So generally we get signals, if, assuming it's come from another country or we've seen it, seen it from another country, we've gotten signals from, the, uh, from another country and we have just such good collaborations around the world that we work closely with them. Um, to just give you a sense of how it went with Omicron, um, we were able within four weeks of really having much of it to talk about severity in our own cohorts. We were able within six to eight weeks to talk about how our vaccines were working. So um, 
in the public, in the, in the, um, and we were able within a couple of weeks to talk about how well we could, we thought they would work given what we saw in the lab. So we had a good window based on our laboratory data. We had, it took us about, um, it took us a couple of weeks to understand how our diagnostics were working and maybe a couple of more where there was some uncertainty in those diagnostics. But within four weeks, we, we had a really good window on our diagnostics and therapeutics and truly what we could anticipate based on lab laboratory work. And then of course the clinical data take a little bit longer, but we're within four to eight weeks, really. That's, and that's really encouraging. I mean, and you add to that, the fact that we now know how to take one example to manufacture a new mRNA vaccine pretty quickly. uh, And the monoclonals are getting readjusted, you know, relatively quickly, relatively quickly for an inpatient public, you know, we're talking months not what historically has been years-long processes. So um, um, it's so hard to appreciate in the middle of things how quickly these things do happen. Um, And I think the time of uncertainty um, hopefully feels like it will be Less, even if we're faced again with these with these types of situations. And maybe if I could put in a plug there, one of the things that's been really um, that we've been able to bolster during this time is our public health data infrastructure, which has was really not equipped to handle much of what we've asked of it. But just over the last year to answer questions of how our vaccines are working. We've had now 29 jurisdictions that have been able to marry their immunization data and their testing data and their death data and their case data to sort of talk to one another before they, and they never did previously. And now, you know, we can, for two thirds of the population, we can have a window as to how vaccines are working back to vaccine effectiveness um, because the public health systems have been able to marry those data together. And that is really, I think, you know, I'm going to get back on my, um, you know, the critical importance of our public health infrastructure, our data modernization efforts to be able to answer these questions in real time. Well, that's great. I mean, I think the one thing we are, I think that we're learning from you today is that while we've been following what's going on in the forefront, in the background, a tremendous amount of progress Huge. Um, has been made, tremendous with our, with our infrastructure. And from where our infrastructure was um, in January of 2012, when, whenever this was, this was discovered, March, February, March, 2020, to today, um, it sounds like it's been transformative. And I think that's due to the work of our public health professionals around the country, not just, and the world, not just at CDC and FDA, but state and local areas. And you guys have done heroic work. Um, and uh, I, I, I know how um, much it feels like it's nothing but constant demands. And to go back to the beginning point, how... Uh, how, how everything is so challenging, but um, uh, I think we're. It sounds like we're so much better prepared. It's so much better situated for what's to come ahead. Our our bodies are more prepared. Our immune systems, but also our policies and our public health response. And that's due to the to the work of you and your team. Thank you. It's, I mean, this is a team sport. I I will just say 12,000. I mean, I know when they show the signs on the news, you see a blue logo. That blue logo is 12,000 people working 24 seven, really hard to make. And you will never know their names, but they're working really hard to make sure that that all of America and the world is safe. Well, thank them again for, for, for all of us. And I know there are so many people who listen, I know listen to, to this show, um, hundreds of thousands a week who are who say that enough of their they don't know a way to express their gratitude no. um, because um, and that the, the the noise the social media noise is but a very thin layer um, of loud voices so I hope you hear that uh, and thank you for coming on and and taking the time to explain things in a really thoughtful useful honest way. Where, as you said, sometimes there's more nuances than people would like to believe uh, there are, but but you're willing to to state them and put them out there and treat us all like adults. And that's how we're going to get through it. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be with you. All right. 
Thank you, Rosal Walensky. Now, before I lead you into uh, what's going to happen in the upcoming shows, I promised you that if you stayed and listened to the entire episode, you'd get a dad joke. So I have two dad jokes to present to you today. They're both terrible. And you can decide which is more terrible. One of them is that um, uh, a woman says that her husband took out a world map and said, uh, take out a dart and throw it at this map. And wherever it lands, that's where we're going to go after the pandemic. And she said, so we're, it turns out we ended up spending the next several months behind the refrigerator. Okay, that's, that's one dad joke. Uh, second pandemic joke, equally awful. It says, someone says they thought it was a terrible idea to sing happy birthday while washing your hands. If you remember that, that was the instructions. Sing happy birthday, that's how long to wash your hands. See, the problem is now every time you walk out of the bathroom, your kids expect a cake. (laughs) All right, that's it. What's coming up on the show? Wednesday, a great episode on caregiving in America with Ai-Jen Poo from the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Randy Klein from Vesta Healthcare. This is a really good in-depth show on something that's troubling so many Americans, which is how to face the crisis of caring for people in this country. And then uh, Jesse Bloom, a virologist from Fred Hutchinson, will be talking about what we know about how this virus will continue to evolve. That's coming up next week. I actually think the second joke was better. You decide for yourself. That's it. See you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to In the Bubble. Hope you rate us highly on your podcast apps. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Chrissy Pease and Alex McGowan produce our show. Our mix is by Ivan Kuryev and Veronica Rodriguez. Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax are the executive producers of this show. We love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Millad and Oliver Hill with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media. And you can find me at Slavitt on Twitter or at Andy Slavitt on Instagram. If you do like what you heard today, please tell your friends and please stay safe, share some joy. We will definitely get through this together. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Feeling decision fatigue about what to make for dinner? We get it. I'm Jane Black. And I'm Liz Dunn. We're veteran food journalists, and as parents ourselves, we know how hard it can be to feed your family. That's why we created Pressure Cooker, a podcast that offers practical strategies for navigating the marketing madness and cultural expectations around mealtime. Each week, we'll check in with the experts. From social media diet trends to baby-led weaning and AI meal planning, we have all your food-related questions covered. Listen to Pressure Cooker wherever you get your podcasts.